0: Alrighty. So last week, I have to, I owe all of you an apology. Um, last week, I had planned on the service ending at eleven thirty, which we did, which was great. Um, what I didn't plan on was the fact that because we're meeting in a house church and there isn't worship teams coming on and off the stage, the platform that. My sermon went an hour and two minutes, um, which was never my intention. I was, I was operating from a total end time and uh, you guys hung in there. So thank you for, for that. Um, the grace of God.
1: Right. <laughs> Cause uh,
0: I kind of just kept going. Um, and. Praise God we way communion, because I'll just keep going until 1130. Um, so this week, that will not be the case. Um, we will not be going to an hour-long sermon. Um, but I just wanted to apologize. And if anybody was like, man, is that a weekly thing? It's not. But I cannot promise that it will never happen again. <laughs> uh, just to be completely honest. Um, but it won't be the norm, I don't think. Um so with that, before we get started in the word, let's, uh, let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning with hearts, Lord, of thankfulness. Thankful that we can approach you as Father. Thankful that we come, in, come, come to you, Lord, in the name of Christ. Thankful that we come before you because we are filled with your Holy Spirit. Thankful that we can worship freely, Lord. Father, I want to take a moment and pray, especially for our Canadian brothers right now, pastors in the Alberta area, who as of today, gathering, are gathering in defiance. Restrictions have been put in place that today they have to meet at a third of capacity fire code limits. And Lord, I know two of those brothers, and they said Christ is worthy to be worshipped. The state, Alberta can do what may. Father, we pray for grace upon uh, Pastor Coates, Pastor Stevens, their families, and their congregation. Father, may they stand firm. May they hold the line. May you use their bold witness, Lord, to grab hold of hearts in the Alberta area and globally. So, Father, as we gather here, we recognize that it is a great privilege to gather freely. So, Father, may we not squander that freedom, but may we approach you now asking you, Lord, to incline our hearts to yours not to selfish gain, not to false motive. Father, may you open our eyes that we would behold your wondrous glory in your holy word. Father, as as a family in Christ here this morning, may you unite our hearts collectively to fear your name. May we leave this morning more satisfied with your steadfast love than when we came in. Father, lead us into all truth. And may the words of my mouth, Lord, be pleasing into your sight now. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would do what only you can. And that is take these truths planted deep within our hearts so that we would be conformed more and more into the image of Christ. That we may know you, love you, enjoy you, and make you known. We commit this time to you now in the name of Christ Jesus, our King. Amen. So if you would turn with me in your Bibles, we're going to be in Colossians chapter one. Um, The goal for the morning is verses three through eight, but that will probably not be the reality. But we'll see uh, how the Lord works this morning. But we're going to be in Colossians chapter one, starting in verse three. Um, Pastor John MacArthur once wrote a thankful heart is one of the primary identifying characteristics of a believer. It stands in stark contrast to pride, selfishness, and worry. And it helps fortify the believer's trust in the Lord and reliance of his provision, even in the toughest of times. No matter how choppy the seas become, a believer's heart is buoyed by constant praise and gratefulness to the Lord. End quote. This morning, these verses we're going to look at are verses that are full of thanksgiving. Thanksgiving specifically to God. So before we even begin unpacking these verses, I want you to take 10 seconds, 15 seconds, and just ponder this question, right? Allow this question to just kind of sit upon your heart for a moment. And the question I want you to consider is what do you give God thanks for? And who do you give God thanks for? <clears throat> Once more, what do you give God thanks for? And who do you give God thanks for? That Those two questions are going to be Very important for you to consider as we work through the passage this morning. And I would encourage you to take the rest of the week and reflect on those two questions as you dig deeper into this book. This morning, we're going to see that followers of Christ must give thanks to God for who they are and what they have because of the gospel of Christ. Followers of Christ must give thanks to God for who they are and what they have because of the gospel of Christ. But when I say who, I'm not simply talking about you as an individual, as much as I'm referring to us as the church collective. These letters that Paul writes we're not written just to an individual, that we're into a corporate church that would be read aloud. And so, even as we think about the applications of God's words, we need to think about them personally, but we also need to think about them corporately. And so, as we think about Thanksgiving, there is an aspect of personal Thanksgiving, but also corporate Thanksgiving. So, before we go any further, let me read, let's just read verses three through six uh, to not be overly ambitious. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world, also it is constantly bearing fruiting and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth." The first point we're going to see is right there in verse three. We need to be thankful to God. When it comes to giving thanks, when it comes to Thanksgiving, God must always be the primary object of our Thanksgiving. God has to be the primary object of our Thanksgiving. And so here, right here in verse three, we do read about how Paul is giving thanks to God For the Colossians believers. And so to say it again in a different way, Thanksgiving must always be vertical before it's horizontal. Why is that? Why does Thanksgiving have to begin with God? Thanksgiving has to begin with God because all good comes from God. He is the source, He is the fountainhead of goodness. It flows from His character. All that we are, all that we have, All that we do as a church globally comes from the Lord. You know, the world we live in is is an interesting one. It wants you to think that uh, you're nothing but a grown-up germ, a cosmic accident. You're purely a material creature. And that's just utterly false. You and I are made in the image of the one true God. We're going to unpack that even more this evening. But I want you to think about it, especially now as the the, the crisp air in the fall is coming in. When you go out at night and you look up and you see all of those stars just dancing and twinkling in the night. And you're overwhelmed by that sense of of grandeur and gratitude. That's from God. When you see a little baby taking their first steps. You can't help but smile and feel joyful and there's a sense of gratitude in there. That's from God. When you hear about these stories of an individual putting their life at risk to save an utter stranger, and you feel thankful for what their actions, that's from God. When a loved one who has spent an entire life hating Jesus, living deep in sin, all of a sudden has their hearts changed and comes to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a work of God. And so Thanksgiving always has to start vertically because it's all from him. If you were to go with me to the book of James, in James chapter one, Verse 17, there is a beautiful reminder here in James 1.17. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Every good of the church comes from God. It doesn't come from a church's ingenuity, a church's creativity, amazing gift packages. It comes from God. And so we have to give God thanks for the good he brings about in our lives and in the lives of God's people and in the world globally. Because for God to give us all these good things and to not say thank you is ingratitude. It is sinful. as I thought about this idea that all thankfulness has to begin vertically with God, my heart breaks. My heart utterly breaks for people who do not know God as their father through the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason my heart breaks for people who don't know God as father through Christ is because of something GK Chesterton once wrote. The worst moment for an atheist is when he is really thankful and has no one to think. Just think about that. The worst moment for an atheist is when he is really thankful and has no one to think. Imagine that. I've never been to the Grand Canyon. It's one of my, it's on my bucket list. I'm dying to go. And just to stand there and take it all in, And to be overwhelmed by its beauty, there's a certain sense of gratitude, right? Like, wow, I get to enjoy this. Imagine standing there and having those emotions, but you have no one to thank. But praise be to God that through Jesus Christ, we always know that every good and perfect thing comes from the Lord. It comes from God above. and So we give gratitude vertically, especially for the church. Secondly, we give thanks to God primarily, firstly, chiefly. Because we have come to know God through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at what he says here in verse three. We give thanks to God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is extremely important because God cannot be known in a saving manner apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. When we give thanks to God, we don't give it in a general sense. We give it in a very specific sense. We understand that we know God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God the Son. You put on any type of award show and everybody wants to say, we thank God, we thank God. I don't think they're talking about the same God we're talking about most of the time. People have a general sense of some cosmic force up there you know, balancing the scales, working in our favor. That's not God. We know God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the one true God, the one who revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush and said, I am who I am. Paul does not have a general God in mind here. This is why he puts the Lord Jesus Christ right there. And and later on in verse eight, he talks about the Holy Spirit. Paul in verses three through eight is showing us the Trinity, God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy spirit. We cannot know God apart from Christ. This is why Jesus said in John 14, six, I am the way, the truth and the life. No man comes to the father, but through me. Paul wants to make crystal clear here that anybody who would take up this letter to the Colossians would not ever separate God, the father from God, the son. And by doing so, Paul is also making clear that the Lord Jesus Christ is God. He's showing us the deity of Christ because he's showing us that the Father and the Son are one. So if you go to John chapter 10. In John chapter 10, Jesus makes this very clear. Starting at verse 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work, we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be with God. So when Paul puts God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ in this same place, right, in this statement, he is talking about their oneness. He is showing us that Jesus is not a separate God. He is not a created Lord. He is equal to the Father. That's what their relationship shows us. And he said, Lord, he is the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wants to make sure this is one of the major themes in Colossians that we talk about. He wants to make sure that everybody knows the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord of Lords. There is nothing outside of the governance of Christ in the entire world. I always say, Leaders who try to govern as if they are not under Christ are nothing more than little boys playing soldier. Jesus is Lord. Jesus isn't just Lord of those who are Christians. I think this is an important thing to distinguish. When he says the Lord Jesus Christ, we sometimes think about the Lordship of Christ as Jesus is Lord of believers. That's true. But Jesus is Lord over everything. You don't make Jesus, Lord of your life. You submit under the cosmic lordship of Christ. I don't, whoever in any place, whatever, the Taliban is under the lordship of Christ, right? Russia is under the lordship of Christ. The entire globe is under the lordship of Christ. Jesus is Lord. Now, Paul goes on, we give thanks to God, uh, the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. The ESV may say, when we pray for you. Paul is specifically now saying that he is giving thanks to God for the Colossian believers. Interesting, because Paul had never met them. Paul had never been to Colossae. Paul had never met these Colossian believers. And yet here is Paul writing from a prison, praying on behalf of brothers and sisters in Christ that he's never met. And when Paul does that, what we're seeing is here the pastoral heart of Paul. But it's not simply just a pastoral heart. We're seeing the heart of a believer. It is, pastoral in the sense that it would be an encouragement to the Colossian believers. But Paul's not saying, well, because of the position I hold in the church, I'm praying for you. Paul's saying, no, I'm praying for you because you are brothers and sisters in Christ. And I think it's so important to not lose sight of the fact that genuinely praying for someone is perhaps the most loving thing you could do for an individual. Because you are taking that person, their needs, their circumstances, and you are going to the creator and redeemer, and you are saying, God, act on their behalf. It's the most loving thing you can do. It's also the most powerful thing you can do. Because anything we think we can do to help an individual is temporary in nature. Only God can provide eternal help, eternal solutions. And so on this first point, let's just think through a couple applications here, right? And, and two of them in the form of questions. When you think about that question, asking beginning, what do you give God thanks for? Do you give God thanks for other brothers and sisters in Christ? Not just the ones, you know, do you give God thanks for the brothers and sisters in Christ In Albania, in Sri Lanka, in Johnsburg, in Schaumburg, in Green Bay, Wisconsin, do we give God thanks for our brothers and sisters in Christ, or do we only give God thanks for what's happening in our immediate circle, in our lives? Which then goes to that second question of application. Are our hearts filled with joy for our brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you find joy in the life of other believers? And if you do, that'll spill over in thanking God for them. Or is our joy, is your joy only wrapped up in what God's doing in your life, not what God's doing in other people's lives? We need to be thanking God for what he has done and what he is doing in the lives of his church. God's doing a whole lot. If we simply turn on the news, yeah, the sky is falling, chicken little, doom and gloom. But our Lord, his plans of redemption cannot be thwarted. God is doing amazing, beautiful, glorious things in the church locally nationally and globally and we must give god thanks for it to not give god thanks for what he is doing in the church potentially reveals that maybe we don't have the love for the church that we ought to have this is something that we can do as a church in a very simple way just go to prayer meeting even you can't give God praise for what he's doing in the church. If you're not gathering with God's people as a church to pray. That's why it's so important for us as a church plant here, a new church. I hate calling it a church plant. It is as a, as a new church, just, just beginning to gather every week to pray. Because at that moment, we are recognizing two things. Our inability got and God's ability And it's time to express gratitude and thankfulness for what God is doing. So on that first point, give thanks for what God is doing in the lives of others. Ask God to increase your joy in what he's doing in the lives of others. And gather with God's people to pray about those things. In person, I just want each of you to know that like, I'm personally thankful for each and every one of you. I've known some of you longer than others, and I'm not one usually to be very emotionally expressive, um, but I do want you to hear from me that I'm thankful for each and every one of you. All of you are dear saints, brothers, and sisters in Christ. And it does delight my heart to hear what God is doing in your lives. And I pray for those things. Let's go to our second point now. That first point was he give thanks to God, but now he, he begins to see what Paul is going to be specifically thankful for. And the first thing he's thanking God for, he's thankful for their faith. Verse four since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. It's an amazing thing. Paul is saying, thank you, God, for the true, genuine, saving faith of those in Colossae. Thank you, God, that you have saved them and they have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is definitely something we must give God thanks for. Spiritually dead people stay spiritually dead unless God does a mighty work by which they place their faith in Christ. And so every time a brother or sister places their faith in Christ, we ought to exclaim, amen. It says all of heaven rejoices. We should give God things for that. But, you know, there's a lot of confusion in today's world what faith means. We give God thing. since we heard of your faith. What faith? What is this faith thing? You know, I've heard some people say faith is a leap in the dark. Faith starts where science begins. For some people, faith is superstitious or just pure wishing. Hope that's how it happens. But that's not the biblical understanding of faith. True faith, true saving faith, true faith from the Lord. It has a foundation. It's strong, it's secured. it's anchored. It has deep roots. And so I think it's always helpful to understand true biblical saving faith with three pillars. The first is content. We don't simply have faith in faith, as some do. I have faith things are going to work out. What's that even mean, faith that things are going to work out? Faith in what? For the believer... Our faith is rooted in things that we must believe that have been revealed to us in the word of God. We believe because we know the character of God. We believe we have faith in him and who he says he is and revealed himself. We have faith in what he's done. We have faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have faith in the hope of the resurrection. Our faith has a content. You cannot have true saving faith if you know nothing about God. Secondly, you have to know that content, but then you have to have a conviction, an earnest belief that it is true. It's not enough to know the content of your faith. You have to be resolved deep in your bones this is true. This is what I stake my life on. Lots of people know lots of good theology about God. It doesn't mean that they have a conviction of its truthfulness. That's the first two pillars. The third pillar is confidence. Confidence is a good word, I think, because of what confidence really means. It's made up these two Latin words. Con, C-O-N, means with, and fide, which means faith. The word confidence truly means with faith. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is where We take the content, we take the conviction, and we say, I'm going to completely put my trust, reliance, and dependence upon this. And this is the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith saves no one. The object of your faith is what saves or doesn't save. And for us, the object of our faith is the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about it. Faith alone saves no one. People have faith in lots of things. People have faith in their good works. Man, I'm a really good person. I have faith that because I'm a good person and done, been relatively morally upright in the culture, I'm going to get into heaven. Some people have faith in their obedience. Well, I'm better than they are. I've, I've obeyed God's word more. And so my spiritual GPA is higher. <laughs> Some people have faith in their success. Done pretty good for myself. Been able to provide really well. I'm even able to be generous to other people. And there's a certain faith you have in that, that that's going to get you by. Some people have faith in their church more than they have faith in Christ. This is why I kind of, I personally struggle with like churches that have like People that have bumper stickers of their church. Right? Like it's I've seen this trend where people have more faith and hope in their church than they do in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then when a heartbreaking scandal or something happens, their faith is shipwrecked. I'm saying those things aren't, hurt, aren't hurtful, they hurt. It's disappointing. I was devastated when Rabbi Zacharias fell. But my faith is in Jesus Christ. The church is made up of imperfect individuals always. So we have to make sure we don't have more faith in our church and what the church offers than the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And with that, we have to make sure we don't have more faith in our church leaders than we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. I will let you down. Trust me. My wife can let you know how many times I let her down in a week alone. (laughs) Right. My wife. I tell my wife, just have faith that I'm going to get the brake light changed. Right. Like. A month later, maybe, okay, she said more than a month. Um, People let people down. Don't have faith in your leaders more than you have faith in Christ. In Colossae, they were battling false teaching. And some of this false teaching was tempting them to place their faith, not only in Christ, it was the Jesus plus movement. A Jesus plus type of faith is not a saving faith, it's a damning faith. And so faith must be in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. This is what Paul is thanking God for. I thank you for those faithful brothers and sisters in Colossae who have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, period. The only faith that saves a soul from the judgment of God is a faith that has the Lord Jesus Christ alone as its object. And what Jesus has done. We get to unpack that a little bit more here in a bit. But just think about the fact that Paul, right, is thanking God for the faith of Colossian believers that he's never met. It's not like, hey, you know, I know Tychicus and Colossae. I hung out with him a couple days ago. That's a, that's a guy with faith, man. No, Paul's like, I've never been there. And yet there's been a report that's come to him. He's heard of their faith. So let's the question. It begs the question, are you and I known for our faith in Christ alone? Is that what you're known for? Your faith in Christ alone. Would others be able to look to the Lord and say, God, I thank you for the faith of Alex? Are we more known for our service, our gifts, our endearing personalities, our divisiveness? What are we known for? We ought to be the type of people that are known by all as having a firm, singular faith in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's thanking them for. There is a type of faith that simply gives Christ lip service. I have faith in Jesus. Awesome. Let's see it in action. The Colossian believers, their faith was so real and so genuine that even though Paul had never been there, report had come. They had a living and active faith, a faith that was visible to the world. The gospel was brought to them by Epaphras, but their faith was not in Epaphras. Their faith was in Christ. Their faith wasn't in, wow, look at how faithful we are as a church in the midst of Colossae where there's there's so little of us. No, their faith was in Christ. Their faith wasn't in, man, we have a really good reputation before Paul. No, their faith was in Christ. It's easy to make faith in Christ theoretical while living with functional saviors that you put your faith in all the time. You want to know where your faith is. What do you trust in when the walls begin to start closing it? Times get hard. I'm going to double down at work, put in more hours. Why? That provides a sense of security. So you have faith in employment. I start feeling insecure, I'm going to read more books, get more knowledge, because that'll give me a sense of security, your faith in education. Been there on that one. Wow, things are getting really hard. Trust the government. Your faith is in your government. My week has been horrible. I just need a date night more than anything with my wife or my husband. Not a bad thing, but make sure your faith's not in your spouse man, I'm feeling really down and out. You know what? I'm going to go to three Bible studies this week. Your faith may be in your church program, man. I'm feeling, feeling scared. I'm feeling worried, whatever. I'm going to have lunch with the pastor. He'll give me that shot in the arm. I need your faith in your church leader. The list can go on and on and on. And most of those things aren't even bad things but they're not things that you're supposed to put your faith and hope. In. If our faith is to be a prayer of thanksgiving to God, then it has to be a faith that is in Jesus Christ alone. We need to run to Christ. We need to cling to Christ. We need to trust in him and him that's alone. So if right now, if you're even, as we're sitting here, if God is by his Holy Spirit is bringing things to mind that you recognize you're putting your faith in more than Jesus, I would say just quietly do business with the Lord now, repent of it right here and lay hold of Christ. The next thing that Paul's thankful for, yeah, we're not getting to verse eight, by the way. <laughs> we're not getting to verse eight. The next thing that Paul's thanking them for is their love. He's thankful for their love. Faith in Christ is powerful. And true faith in Christ is so powerful that it produces in the heart of every believer a supernatural heavenly love. To put it another way, actually, not only a supernatural and heavenly love, it is only by faith in Christ that you could ever truly have any love. A person who is not by faith connected to the Lord cannot love. An unbeliever cannot truly love because God is love. And so how can you love if you're not connected to the one from which love flows? You can have a counterfeit that kind of looks like it. Some people may not recognize it. You probably get away with a counterfeit bill here and there buying things, but it's not the real thing. And so faith in Christ enables brothers and sisters in Christ to truly love. A loveless Christian is no Christian at all. Verse four, look think again, the love which you have for all the saints. Wow. Like I wonder if anybody, any brothers and sisters have ever thanked God for my love. Um, probably not. Um, Sadly, I'm usually more characterized as a truth teller than a person of love. Working on that one. Um, Sometimes I, you know, I'm probably as cuddly as sandpaper when it comes to things. (laughs) Um, But I have to grow in love. Um, But but just a a moment of, of, you know, honesty here. Probably the reason that I haven't grown in love as I ought to is because I was growing in truth disconnected from God. I was growing in knowledge of God, but not growing in knowledge of God relationally, right? Doctrine is a beautiful thing if it brings you to devotion, but doctrine is a dangerous thing. If it brings you simply to a place of being puffed up, knowledge that puffs up can never be knowledge that produces love. Now, so what is love? What is, what is biblical love? You got to find that. Biblical love, godly love, is not sappy, heart-racing, butterflies in your stomach, keep you up all night thinking about that person. No, you hang up first. No, you hang up first type of love. <laughs> That's not love. Right? Love isn't, you know, no offense to dad, you know, during December, the Hallmark movies. As cute as they may be, that's not love. That's not love. That type of love is cheap, fake and self-serving. That kind of love is conditional. That kind of love has no foundation when the storms begin to come in to the harbor. On the other hand, biblical love is sacrificial, constant, and it isn't shaped by circumstances. Biblical love is not a feeling, but it's an act of the will that seeks the well-being of another individual, even at great cost. So let's look at some passages here on what God says in his word about love. If you can't turn there, I'm going to go a little quicker for time. You can just write them the reference. 1 John 4.10 tells us, "In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Or John three sixteen, familiar one, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Or how about Romans 5, 8? But God shows his love for us, or demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or John 15, 13, which reads Greater to love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. See, biblical love comes at cost, at sacrifice. If you were to look at 1 Corinthians 13, right, the famous chapter on love, you would see there's nothing in there about feelings. had one person say, love is saying you before me. See, love seeks to meet the needs of others. And we see that most beautifully displayed in how God has sought what we truly needed. The forgiveness of sins and eternal life to be restored in relationship with God. Now, interestingly, love is truly the fruit of faith and God in Christ provides us with this. In Romans 5.5, there's a beautiful little verse here. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. When we came to faith, God poured his love into our hearts. We've been given new hearts. Prior to salvation, we had hearts of stone. Hard, lifeless, nothing there. But in Christ, we receive a new heart. The prophet Ezekiel said in Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-six. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. See, stone is not living. A heart of flesh is alive. It's pumping. It can love. And when God gives us this new heart, it comes with new desires, godly desires. When you were dead in your sin, you didn't desire the things of God, but through faith in Christ, you do desire the things of God. You love what he loves. You hate what he hates. You love who he loves. God is love. 1 John four sixteen tells us that. And so if we've been made alive in Christ, Love is the most natural fruit of our faith, and so Paul gives thanks to God for the love that these Colossian believers display. And I was preparing the sermon, and this was actually the hardest point of the entire thing. Second, figuring out how I was going to make it in the time frame. You know, it's not hard to understand this here. But what makes it hard is recognizing how short we come from living it out. That's where it gets really difficult. The love for which you have for all the saints. That's an amazing thing to be known for, to be known as loving God's people. It's one of the birthmarks of true saving faith. Write down these two verses and go meditate on them later. First John 2:10. The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. And First John 3:14 through 16. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murder has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. True saving faith, right? How do I know if I'm really saved? One of the ways you can know if God has truly given you eternal life is do you love God's people? Francis Schaeffer, um, who was a great, pastor, theologian, philosopher said this about in his book, the mark of a Christian. And I found it just to be piercing. The church is to be a loving church in a dying culture. How then is the dying culture going to consider us? Jesus says by this, all men will know that ye are my disciples. If you have love for one another in the midst of the world, in the midst of our present dying culture, Jesus is giving a right to the world. Upon his authority, he gives the world the right to judge whether you and I are born again. Christians on the basis of our observable love toward all Christians. We need to be known as people who love each other. We need to be known as a loving person toward God's people. We need to do better at this. I've been at church, you know, I was at a church where everybody is friendly, but nobody is friends. We need to have true love for one another. We can unpack what that looks like in the context of community and relationships, but I'll say this much. You and I can never say we truly love each other if the word of God is not at the center of our relationships. Right? If we're going to love each other, we both need to be connected mutually to the God of love. And lastly, real quick, he says here, that he's thankful for their hope because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. That's verse five. Hope's a funny thing It's used so many, so often each year. I hope the Chicago Cubs win the world series again. I hope the Cubs sign back Javier Baez. I hope God gives me a long and healthy life. I hope I don't get COVID again. I hope that the outpost is here hundred years from now. But that's not how the word hope is used in the Bible. In scripture, the word hope is used with a sense of confident expectation, with assurance. Something that you can, you know, bet the farm on. Hebrews 11.1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Paul is connecting the faith and love that Colossians have and what they have their hope centered on. Interesting, faith, love, and hope. That little triad is found in 1 Corinthians 13. So what is it that they're hoping in? It says that hope laid up in heaven. All right, stored up, it's reserved, it's secured in heaven, but what is it? Colossians 3 verses 1 through 4 tell us, and we'll unpack those at some point. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not the things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. That hope laid up in heaven is the full enjoyment of God in Christ that is to come. There are untold blessings that await us in heaven. But all of those blessings have one great aim, to further aid us in the worship and enjoyment of God in Christ. This has always been the hope of God's people. At some other point, we can look at verses for those. But just know that when our hearts and minds are fixed on this great hope, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, as it says in Hebrews. And they heard about this hope, it says, through the word of truth, the gospel. The reason the gospel is the word of truth is it comes from the God who is truth. His word is the standard of truth. It contains no lies. It contains no falsehoods because God is the standard of truth. God never lies. God has no falsehood and the word is living and active. So when The Bible speaks, God speaks. And so the gospel is the word of truth. John 17, 17, Jesus says, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. The gospel, when it is declared, is a proclamation of eternal truth. The gospel. Man, that's a whole series. We're doing it Sunday nights. Right, The good news that God saves sinners by his grace and for his glory through the life, death, burial, and resurrection. The good news that Jesus has defeated sin, Satan, and death. The good news that sinners are forgiven and eternal life is available. I'm going to end by reading from the Heidelberg Catechism. I'm 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 a big fan of catechisms, creeds, and confessions. I I had a lot still to go. Um, <laughs> I thought I didn't have enough. The Heidelberg Catechism question one is a beautiful question. It says, what is our only comfort in life and death? This is the answer that I am not my own, but I belong with body and soul, both in life and in death to my faithful savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. We live as, by, that way because of the hope that one day we will worship him unhindered. In a society where truth is unknowable and lies surround, the gospel stands firm and shining brightly as a word of truth. So give your life to studying the gospel. Because the deeper we go into the gospel, the more we see the face of Christ. And the more we see the face of Christ, the more we see truth. And the more we see truth, the more we can navigate in a world of deception. We're going to pray there, but as we pray, it's my prayer that we will be known as people of faith, love, and hope. Um, Let's pray and then we will have communion. Father God, we come before you. And Lord, I'm thankful for the Colossian believers. We lived here on earth so long ago. I'm thankful, Lord, that they were examples of what it means of imperfect saints, saints, to be known for their faith, love, and hope. I'm thankful for that, Lord, because it reminds us that we too can be people that are known by faith, love, and hope. But we can only be those people by a radical, utter dependence upon you working in our lives by your grace and your Holy Spirit. And so, Father, I pray right here, right now, as we prepare to come before the communion table and reminded of the grace that you've shown us in visible, tangible form. I pray, Lord, that you would increase within us our faith in Christ alone. I pray that you would increase within us a love for the people of God. I pray that you would increase within us a desire and expectation for the hope that is to come. And I pray that you'll do it, Lord, week in and week out. That you do it in this community that we live. And I pray that when it's all said and done, that we will be found faithful. And perhaps, Lord, if you're generous, those who come after us will hear a report. A small pocket of believers gathering in Lakemore, Illinois, that imperfectly, but faithfully were known for faith, love, and hope.